All right, we have a special guest today. His name ends in McNorton and starts with Buddy. That's, that's you. <laughs> I still have a microphone. I can talk all I want. You did all right with the announcements. Let me give you a solid C. You're moving up. June 9th. Let me move this out of the way so I don't trip and fall. All right, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to be at. And we've been talking about the, the new covenant, which Brian did so well at last week. I certainly appreciated everything he had to say. And uh, <laughs> I, must, I heard like half of his sermon just because I worked with him. He like bounced it off of me for like two weeks prior to that. I was looking forward to the, uh, remember the part where he talked about nay, you know, but nay? We've been saying but nay for like two weeks at work now, so it's great. So Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to continue with this idea of the new covenant. And uh, I guess most of everybody looks at their stuff on their devices, and that sea turtle picture is going to distract me horribly. Who's, you did, yes, you did. I'm like down there, and I'm like, everybody, oh, sea turtles. Okay, it's so colorful. It was so well done. But uh, Hebrews chapter number 12, um, <clears throat> I hate the dentist. <laughs> Who, I mean, I don't think there's anybody that uh, has the mentality that even if you're just going to get things, look, going to the dentist to get your teeth checked out, it's like going to Goodyear to just get your brakes checked. There's going to be a problem, all right? Uh, you're going to go in there, and they're going to be like, well, we checked your brakes, and we also found out that your transmission's made out of Jello, so this is going to cost you $25,000. The, the dentist is going to find something wrong in your mouth hole. There's going to be something wrong. Uh, and I hate the dentist. I've, I remember the first time when I went to the dentist that I got put on the, uh, I guess, the laugh, not the laughing gas, but the sleeping gas. It was a horrible train wreck. I'll tell you what happened afterwards when I woke up, and uh, it was bad. Let's just say I had to go to the bathroom. So nonetheless, when I, I was a kid. Well, I mean, I was 34, but... <laughs> Not, I was under the influence at that point of the dentist. One of the, as a kid, I remember my mom took me to the dentist religiously, and one of the only saving graces of going there was the Highlights magazine. You remember that thing? You remember the Highlights magazine, right? Yeah, you, it has not been on your consciousness for like two decades. The Lord just brought it back up out of nowhere, and the sheer joy that entered your mind, it is the best, you know. One of my favorite things as you're going through the highlights is the, the picture, the two different pictures, and they ask you to circle the differences. You remember that one? Of course you do. I was terrible at it, uh, but nonetheless, I loved trying to find the differences. Uh, the verses we're going to read this morning here in Hebrews could fall under a biblical highlights where you're going to be looking at the differences. Uh, now, we're gonna, not going to go line by line and look at every minute difference between the Old and the New Covenant because we only have a, a certain amount of time. And if I leave Paula back up there locked up with your incredibly well-behaved children for too long, we may smell smoke and, uh, you know, and fire and flames. And that's okay because we need a new building back there, so I'm not totally against it. But I am worried about the safety of Paula. Your kids, they're young. You can have more. So here in Hebrews chapter number 12, uh, we're going to get down here into verse number 18. And uh, the writer of Hebrews, as we're going through it, we went through it on Wednesday nights, uh, if you were there for some of that. 
But even if you go through the entire book and just read it, I'm going to go ahead and just say that the writer of Hebrews makes some assumptions that the reader, he just assumes the reader knows certain things, all right? So when we read these verses, uh, I'm going to kind of assume, you know, some things. And the reason why is, is because if we got into the minutia of everything, we wouldn't get through what we need to look at today. Uh, I've always told everyone when you read the book of Hebrews, you want to read it with a little yarmulke on uh, because it was written to Jewish believers. So that's why there are certain assumptions that are made as we go through it. Uh, we're not necessarily used to this, uh, some of the, the, the topics and the nature of the things that he talks about and the way that he talks about them. So as Gentiles, sometimes it doesn't necessarily go over our head. We're just not real sure what he's shooting at. Uh, I think we're going to see it pretty clearly here today in verse number 18 as he, he compares and kind of contrasts, shows a little bit of the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant and why the new covenant is better, which is a key word that we find all through the book of Hebrews, the word better. So let's just read these verses. I'll stop talking and list the, the very minimal. We'll at least get some Bible verses read out of this thing and uh, we can go home and call it a success. So verse number 18 the writer says here, But you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. I've always liked that phrase, the voice of words. I mean, what was he trying to say? Well, what he was trying to say is it was intense. That mountain that he's speaking about here is Mount Sinai. This was the mountain in Exodus, I think, chapter uh, like 14, I believe it is, where... The children of Israel had just come out of Egypt. God had delivered them. They're past the Red Sea now. They're entering into the wilderness. And they come up on Mount Sinai the third month to the day that they left out of Egypt. They're their month when God started their calendar over. And they came up to that very day, and God calls Moses up to the mountain. Now, you can see that... Let's continue to read the scene, because I kind of stopped short in verse number 19. It says, "...in the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words, and those that heard it..." Listen to this. Those that heard it begged that the word should not be spoken anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. Did you get that? They couldn't handle it. That's what's being said here. And so much so, God says that if a beast were to touch the mountain, now God's presence is on the top of Sinai. He says, if a beast even touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. That's a pretty intense moment. You know, when I read this, I probably shouldn't think this way, but I do sometimes. I think about uh, that scene in The Lord of the Rings. And if you don't like The Lord of the Rings, you can leave. But uh, <laughs> there's that scene, you know, in The Lord of the Rings uh, when... Uh, Frodo, uh, he comes up over the edge of the mountain and then, you know, this like over the valley and then boom, there's, you know, the eye of Sauron right over to the other side is Mount Doom and it's just exploding, you know, and they don't look at it and be like, you know, should have brought a packed lunch. That's not what they were thinking at that point. They were thinking, I want to leave. So every time I read this scenario, I think of Mount Doom just exploding. Not that God, here, here's something and boy, my mind is, I told Angela, I said, this is either going to be really good or a giant train wreck because my mind was like in a thousand places today. When we read the old, and then we're going to get to the new covenant, so hang on, buckle up your seatbelt here. When we think about God, we have the tendency to think that God's different than he was. He's not. He's the same God. Uh, the Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire. 
Um, you know, all those instances that we read under the old covenant are still true about God. You know, so we look at this scenario and we think to ourselves, oh my gosh, that is terrifying. I'm going to tell you right now, folks, God in that scenario is terrifying. To have to stand before God as God reads the commands and the weight of the commands hits you, you should be nothing less than terrified. Because when God stepped on that mountain and called Moses up and hit him in the rock and gave the, you know, for 40 days gave him all those commandments and gave him those 10, but there were more that he gave if you read that from chapter 20. So we're reading, we're reading kind of an episode happened actually in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, he gives the big 10. And then for the next four chapters, he gives more. And when they get to chapter number 24, uh, Moses comes down and he calls all the people to them. And he said, remember what you said a couple of chapters ago? Now, Moses didn't say it that way, but you get it. Remember what you said a couple of chapters ago when uh, I said, will you do all that the, the God says, here's my commands, will you do them? And all you guys said, yes, we'll do it. And you hadn't even heard what it was yet. You remember that? Well, here it is. And now that you've done it, you, you and I are going to go into a deal. We're going to go into a covenant about this. So you know what God does? He gets all the people together. You know, Moses is there, Aaron is there, Nahu, Nah, uh, Nadab and Abihu, whom God would take their life in another couple of years. So they were there, and he gets all the people together. Moses takes the blood, a bowl full of blood, in essence, or a bucket of blood, whatever you want to look at it. He dips hyssop and scarlet in there, and then he slings blood all over the people. And you thought Pentecostal church services were odd sometimes. <laughs> You ain't ever been to a church service where somebody flicked blood. I hope you haven't, all right? And so here's the congregation, and Moses is slinging blood all over them and all over the book of the words of the covenant that God had spoken. And in that moment, Israel was in an un... They had entered into a relationship with God, a covenant with God, based on the death of another living thing, the shedding of blood. God's not playing around. He meant business. Now, all this is a foreshadow. We could really jump into all the ins and outs of all of what that means, and, and it's very important, but I want to, let me touch on this before we go any further. What is a covenant? I wrote it down in some fancy words so I wouldn't forget. Uh, a covenant is an alliance or an agreement between two or more parties that establishes a platform of interaction. That's, it establishes the platform. That is why. We, see, this, this is one of the, the, the coolest things that ever dawned on my small mind. When we look back at the Old Covenant, we say, how in the world could God kill 300 Amalekites? How in the world could God do that to Adam and Eve? Why in the world would God, you know, take all these Israelites and have them bitten by vipers? Why would all these things happen? Because the children of Israel entered into a do-or-die covenant with God. You do it or you die. That is what is so amazing about this idea of trying to live under the new covenant or mix the old covenant in with the new. Because what we're saying is, is we're saying is I will take a do or die, black or white, yes or no covenant that I cannot keep and try to mix it in with this covenant that I can't do. It doesn't make any sense. And so what we do is we constantly live in this state of 
I have to do these things to be right with God or to get right with God or to get saved or to stay saved. And the fact of the matter is, is this, is God saying, if you want to live under the old covenant, either you do it or you will die. And I will punish your sin in a place called hell forever. You get no other options. There's no, oops, I didn't mean to. There's none of that. This is why the Old Testament is so intense. God is still that intense. Nothing about God has changed. He is the absolute same God that sent Adam and Eve out of the garden on purpose. He is the absolute same God that sent Israel into the bondage under the, under the punishment of a myriad of different nations whom took the life of people. Remember when the one guy, they were bringing the ark back and he touched the ark and he just fell over dead? I read a guy, he said this. He said, it, the, the dirt and the mud that the ark would have touched when it fell off a cart was more holy than a human being touching it. God said to do not touch it, and he meant business. Why are we talking about all this? Because when that mountain was burning with fire and smoke, and Moses went up there, and Paul tells us later in the New Testament that when he came back down, because he had just simply beheld really what was somewhat of the judgment of God, that his face shone so bright that he had to cover it up for a very long period of time because people couldn't even look at his face. Now, that's who we're dealing with here. That's the God we're dealing with. That's the covenant that he put into place. Now, if we were to stop reading then, it'd be really depressing. Be honest, let's be honest, all right? I mean, we'd be like, I'm out, all right? Let's go eat, drink, and be merry. And by the way, people that get wrapped up in, you know, old covenant religion, that's why they usually do that. Because they understand, I can't do this, so why try I'm just going to go, you know, sow my wild oats and do my thing. And you know what? I don't blame them. Because if you're going to go down, why go down beating yourself to death? That's human logic. I speak as a man. I speak in the flesh, as Paul would say in that moment. So it would be really bad if we were like, oh, gosh, man, Hebrews is great. Thanks for bringing us up, man. I'm glad I woke up early and got my family ready in a whirlwind of activity and Ate breakfast running out of the front door while leaving my Bible on. I don't even know if I turned the air conditioner down. Something's at home burning, I'm sure. But I'm here. So thanks for telling me that. Okay, now let's get to the new covenant, all right? So look what he says here in verse number 22. But you have not come, but you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is this, he's relating these two mountains together to kind of give us a picture. Mount Sinai, which was law. Mount Zion, which is in Jerusalem, which is considered grace or the gospel or Christ. And he goes on and he says, Of the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the congregation of the firstborn. I love this phrase, who are registered in heaven. I don't know why I like that so much. It just sounds cool. You know, you go up there and he's like flipping through the files and there it is, you know. <laughs> and it says this, to God. You've come to God. Or more that we could say it this way, God has come to you. Because under the old covenant, you know what he said? Even if a, even if a wild animal that has no sense of right and wrong, that has no ability to choose good and evil, if it even touches the mountain, kill it. But here we are standing on the mountain with God now. And it says this. Notice in the next description. It says that we're standing there to, uh, to God. And notice how it describes him. The judge of all. Interesting way to describe him, right? 
We would think in this moment we'd say the most gracious one, right? Now, he is gracious, but he's the judge of all. You know what the difference is? Is when you're standing on Zion, the judge of all has a completely different relationship to you than if you're standing on Mount Zion. Sinai and Zion, excuse me, back that up. You get the point, miss the moment. (laughs) And he says, to the spirits of just men who have been made perfect. So that's the company that you're in on Mount Zion. The spirit of just men that have been made perfect. And we're going to look at that word more in just a second. It says in verse 24, and here we are. Here's the basis of the whole thing. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, what an interesting thing to end on. He, he, he likens, he takes what Abel did. Remember what Abel did in the book of Genesis? He was the one that would, that after Adam and Eve, that would make that first sacrifice, Right? And he goes on and he says, you know what, think back to that thing. Think back to that time when after the garden, those with the second generation of sinners born on the earth offered up. And what did he offer up? A blood sacrifice. And he says, and as pure as that, I mean, if you could, if you could go back into the old covenant and bring all the sacrifices back to when they were at their most pure form, it would have been in that moment. When it was new, when it was real, legit, when it was, uh, I don't want to put it, when it was still very intimate before it had turned into a religious event. And what does the Bible say? It says it speaks of better things than even that. This is the new covenant. The new covenant that Jesus mediated. Now, I know we don't use the word mediate quite a bit. I don't use it often. But if you've ever had to go to court or if you've been in a scenario where somebody uh, had to stand in for you, to make something happen legally, you understand the word mediate. So somebody goes in there and they work out the deal. Now here's the thing. Under the first covenant, the old covenant, God worked out the deal with him and the people. He came to the people. He said, this is the deal. They said, sign me up. And then not three chapters later, they were dancing naked around a golden calf. And if you're in the south, it's naked, not naked. There's a huge difference. (laughs) Naked is what happens like if you have to go to the doctor sometimes. Naked is when it's just all off the rails, all right? (laughs) And that's what was going on. And Moses comes down off the mountain. He's got the Ten Commandments. He comes down. He's written by the finger of God, the Bible says. He comes down. He sees what's going on. He gets so angry, he throws them down. And you've seen the movie. And you throws them down, and they bust. And he says, you know, something in the voice of Charleston Heston. And he walks up to Aaron. And Aaron, he says, Aaron, what's going on here? He goes, I don't know. All the people threw their gold into the fire, and out popped a golden calf. Really? And you think your kids come up with stupid excuses. And then you know what God, you know what Moses said? He, he took the Levites, and he said, everybody that's on the Lord's side, line up over here. And everybody that said, hey, you know, we kinda, we're kind of feeling this golden calf thing. You know what they did? They pulled out their swords and they killed them all. You see how, how things change real quickly in that scenario? You know why? Because God made a deal with the people direct. Now, before you leave here this morning, I want you to understand this. God has not established anything with you directly. He's established something with you via a mediator. And we better be glad for that because we couldn't hold up the first part of the deal. And there is no way that we could have anywhere come close to holding up the new covenant deal 
Because the new covenant deal wasn't just simply an outward activity that would look perfect. The new covenant deal is, is you have to have a heart that's absolutely perfect. I mean, that's, that's hugely different. It's, it's not even in the same stratosphere, hemisphere. It's like in a different galaxy. To look at mankind and say, don't just do it right. Do it with the perfect intent. Do it out of nothing but love. Do it because you want to do it. And therein is the problem. The want to of man is broke from birth. It's broken. We can't want to. Have you ever heard a kid say that? You know, you tell them to do something, well, I can't want to do it. I believe you. I completely believe you. I feel that way almost every Monday, all right? (laughs) I can't want to do this. And then I remember the covenant that I've entered in with the mortgage company. (laughs) And the mortgage company doesn't care about my intentions. They just care about, you know, XXX.XX, you know, the check in the mail every month. That's all they care about. All right, so this covenant that we're under then, this new covenant, did it just come about? Uh, One of the misnomers of the new covenant is that it, it was free, and it is not. It's free to you, but it wasn't free. Over in John chapter, and if you want to look at that, you can. John chapter number 19 and verse number 28. I don't have it in my notes, so I think I'm going to take a peek at it too. John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross at this point. He is just looking, uh, looking. I just I went like half King James, half twenty first century on that one. <laughs> Brian would be proud. He had just uh, looked at John and said, "Hey, John, here's my mom. Take care of her." He gets down in verse number twenty eight and it says, "After this, Jesus, knowing, now, man, I love this statement, man. This is good stuff. Knowing that all things were now accomplished, this was no accident." Everything that happened, Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew it. I think sometimes we like to, you know, turn the gospel narrative into like this fairy tale love story type thing where, you know, Jesus gets down here and he's like, oh, man, I really do love you guys so much. I'll do anything. No. He knew what was going to happen to him. He knew it. And while he was on the cross, he said, all things are done. It's done. And so what does he say? He announces this. But before he does, he says, I thirst. You know why? Because it said he'd ask that. He'd say that in the book of Psalms. And then in verse 29, it says, Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled it with a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, which is not the most soft material in the world. A hyssop is, is very rough. Matter of fact, they used to use it to clean wounds with, you know, because it had a purifying effect. Put it on a hyssop, put it to his mouth, Verse 30, so when Jesus received the sour wine, he said it. He says it's finished. And he bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. You open your Bibles right now and you'll see a little blank uninspired page between Malachi and Matthew. It says new covenant. You could just take that page. It's uninspired unless you got scripture in the back of them. Don't do this, Daniel. You tear that out. <laughs> Some people are technical. Then y'all, <laughs> you just tear that little page out, and you can stick it right here. Here's the new covenant. The new covenant 
is always, all God's covenants are written in blood. You know why? Because God means business. Hebrews chapter 9, I want to read that one. Let's go over there. I, I didn't print these out. I should have, but I was like, you know what? I'll just do something crazy and flip to Bible verses at church. I know it's just radical. I know, I know. I'm a trendsetter. Hebrews chapter 9. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Leave me alone, Doug. Verse 16. It says, this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16. It says, for where there is a testament, there must also of a necessity be the death of the testator. So think of the word testament as the word will. Like you have a living will or whatever the case may be. He says, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the will maker lives. Which, by the way, side note, makes what the prodigal son did so bad. Because what he was saying is, is give me what I should get when you're dead. You're worth more to me dead than you are alive. That's really what he was implying behind it all. So he goes on and he says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled both the vessels of the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And here it is, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So when Jesus, it wasn't necessary for Jesus, now get this, to just die. When Jesus died, he had to die a bloody death. And I think it's the understatement of the hour to say that Jesus' death was a bloody death. You see, without the shedding of blood, there is no standard in which God can have covenant with us. The interesting thing here in this moment is when Jesus died on the cross and he said it was finished, he was making a covenant for us between him and the Father. We enter into that covenant by faith. This shows the foolishness, and I say this kindly, it shows the foolishness of trying to gain right standing with God based on your activity. There is no activity that a man could do or a woman could do that is going to equal what a blood death covenant with God is for. You say, well, what kind of God would require such a thing? Well, my question is this, is what kind of people are we that we don't understand the kind of God that would require such things? We often want to look at God and say, how could God? My question to us is, how could we not understand? How could we be so spiritually blind to overlook these things? When the accusation is made, why not make it at man, not make it at God? It's man's doing that man finds himself in this situation. That requires the sacrifice of the new covenant. It's easy, isn't it, to just say, why would God? Well, we, it's like what Job said when God spoke to him. He finally got to the point, he said, where I understood that I was a fool and I just put my hand over my mouth. That's one spiritual discipline I don't have. <laughs> okay, one of 10,000. But who's counting, Angela? <laughs> Matthew verse 5, verse number 17. Jesus is speaking there on the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, you like, you think that Sermon on the Mount is something that you're, that you're capable of living out? Go read it again real slow. Okay? 
And in that, in the middle of that message, Jesus said this. He says, do not think that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You know why? Because the law and the prophets weren't about you and me. They were about him. That's why Moses told Israel, one day there's coming one that's like unto me. Him, he, you will hear. When he shows up, you'll listen to him. Because they certainly didn't listen... Moses walked up to a rock and hit the rock with a stick and water flew out of it. You wouldn't even have to do that much to me. We watch what David Blaine does on TV and we're like, oh, give him any kind of money he wants. Just do it again. I mean, come on. Moses held a stick up over a giant sea and it just stood up on heaps. You know what I mean? And they still didn't listen to him. He said, take the tree and throw it in the water and you can drink it. And they did it and it worked. You know? They didn't still, didn't listen to him. Moses said, you won't listen to me, but there's going to be one that shows up that is so absolutely radically different than anything that you've ever seen. Him, you'll hear him. And he's going to do things that you can't even believe in your mind that he could possibly do. And he did. He died and rose himself from the dead. The entire trinity involved in that. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All throughout the New Testament, we see it over and over again. And so he said, I didn't come to destroy it, I came to fulfill. He said, for surely I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until it's all fulfilled. Jesus didn't hate the law. Jesus loved the law. And I would even say this. If you sit here born again, you love it too. Tell me what one aspect of God's law is an offense to us, really. Is it the thou shalt not murder part? Well, the other day in traffic it might have been. (laughs) Is it the, you know, is it the don't, don't steal? I mean, is that an offense to the believer's heart? Who is God to tell me he can't steal? No, the heart of the believer says, yes, I love the law. But the heart of the believer also is so connected with the one that fulfilled the law we could actually live under the accusation at times that, oh, you, like, you must live by the law. No, I don't live by the law because when I love people, it just looks like I'm doing the law. The law is not the goal, though. The covenant keeper is the goal, as Paul said. The sacrifice that the law demands is exactly what Jesus did under the new covenant for us because it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he, God, hath made him, Jesus, who knew no sin. Now, that's an interesting phrase because it's not like Jesus didn't know about sin. He knew what adultery was. And I'd venture to say, as he, knowing all things and seeing all of mankind, had seen people do such things in that sense and found no enjoyment in it whatsoever. Matter of fact, under the old covenant, the intensity of the covenant was that God would not even look. Now, what I'm saying here is this. It's not that God didn't see it. It's that he refused to acknowledge Anything that a person did outside, it it was all sin. That's the intensity of the old covenant. Everything was sin. You ever been in a position like that? Everything you did was sin. That dress isn't long enough. Your hair isn't long enough, ladies. Your makeup's too bright. And isn't it interesting that all the rules for what's holy in church, it seems like, all are geared at women. Women. Because there is something oppressive on women about all thoughts, you know, self-righteous religions. They all push women down. Anyways, that's a side note. I don't know how you got me off on that. 
For he made him, and the word know, I don't even know how I got off that for the word know. The word knew here, though, knew no sin. This isn't like he didn't know about it and how it works or he had ever seen it on the earth. That's not what he's saying. The word know is a relational type word. It's the idea that you, you have a connection with. You know, it can be used in the context of marriage as well, in that, in that relationship, relationship. He knew no sin. For he who, I'm going to read it again. For he had made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I've heard it say one time in an illustration, a parishioner walked up to a pastor and says, how is it that God can make us righteous? And he goes, well, i got a better one for you. How is it that God made him sin? When you answer that one, I'll answer the other one, you know. Last Sunday, even when we took communion, what we took communion on the basis of was the covenant. We were saying we weren't making covenant with God in that moment. We were celebrating the covenant that God had made with himself that he called us into. That's what we were doing. We were just, we were just thanking him that we unconditionally get to have a part of this covenant that we had nothing to do with, but we had everything in mind when he did it. He had all of us in mind when he did it. When he fulfilled the covenant, it wasn't like he was, going, he was saying, I'm just going to do this and see who responds to it. No. He knew what was going to happen. And he calls us into such a, such a thing. It's an amazing thing. All right, got to hurry up. And that, you know, is a lie. Is Paul in here? Can she hear me? I'm just kidding. Hebrews chapter 8. I want to go over the details of this covenant. So when we've talked about it in generic terms. We've talked about how it was established. Uh, we've talked about what it wasn't, so now we're going to talk about some of the details of it in Hebrews chapter number 8. And it's going to be in verse number 1. No, no, no. I might as well, we're just going to have to go to verse number 7. We're, we're never going to get out of here if I don't. All right, so verse 7, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It says, For if that first covenant would have been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second. Because Now notice this, For finding fault with them, he says... Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And notice what he says, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. There's that intensity again. He says, for I will make a covenant... Uh, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and his brother know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses and their sins and their lawless deeds. Did you catch all that? Sometimes we think transgressions, sins, lawlessness, and all that stuff is the same thing. It ain't. All right, it is very different. He says, and notice what he says at the end of that. He says, I'm going to remember them no more until after you get saved and then all your lawlessness and transgressions and evil deeds are then taken away with you by the words that you say to God when you're sorry. Now, I know in, it's easy to take that and, and, and make a statement like that and be like, man, everybody's dumb. But the fact of the matter is, that's how most Christians live. That's how some of you are living in here today. You think blood got you in and word keep, words keep you good. And that's not the way that it works. 
I'm not downplaying repentance because when we repent in our lives, our actions and our words and our directions are all going to match. They're going to go together. But just saying words to God is not repentance. All right? Words don't save us. Words don't keep us in line. The blood death of Jesus Christ and his bodily resurrection makes things right. And that's where we operate from. I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. It does matter. It hurts us every time we sin. It doesn't change the way God thinks about us, but it does change the way we think about God. And it changes the way we think about us. And it, in, it starts us into this cycle where we're doing nothing but trying to meet our own needs outside of the position that Christ has placed us in. And, you know, and the problem with the old covenant wasn't the covenant itself. It's not like the law was a bad covenant. I mean, who's going to look at it and say, don't kill people? What a dumb idea. You know, nobody's going to say it was a great idea. Matter of fact, I'd venture to say this. There is not a civilization since the giving of the law that has not been touched socially by what Moses said, did, and wrote down from coming off Mount Sinai. Not one civilization, including the Western civilization. We're very much influenced by burning mountain. I mean, Americans especially, we're all about the justice. Well, we used to be. We're all about the justice aspect of you commit crime, you, you do the crime, you do the time, you know. Anyways, you're getting me off. There wasn't anything wrong with the law. There was something wrong with those that were called to keep it. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to step in, and I'm going to do something that makes the heart different. I'm going to give you a new heart. And within that heart is wrapped up my intentions. And, one, you know, we, we like to cherry pick all these defining things that really, really defines what a Christian is and who a Christian is. I will wrap it up in this just from reading these verses. If the intentions, of, sometimes our intentions and our actions don't match. We get that, all right? I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying it's a reality. But the difference between a believer and a non-believer are what are the intentions of your heart? What are they? If the intentions of your heart and the desire of your heart is the one that has died, bled, and rose again from the dead to save you, that's your intention, more than likely you're a believer. That's between you and God. We like to say this, well, I can't believe they said that word. They're probably not a Christian. That's what we like to say. God likes to say, let me see the heart. And I also say this, when the heart is right, you can't stop your life from following it. It will happen. So don't tell, don't, let's not say to one another that I've had the experience or I've prayed the prayer and then nothing about the intentions of my heart have changed in the moment and over, over a course of time because it's impossible. It is impossible to come into contact with the gospel and the gospel not begin changing us on small levels and bigger and bigger and bigger as things go. The gospel will show out in a person's life. God, it's the part of the covenant that God's made with himself that he'll change the heart of the individual. Hopefully that came across right. I wasn't trying to say everybody's not saved. <laughs> but I, I will say this, though. What a per I think it is detrimentally important that we push, in, push forward the importance of just what Jesus Christ has done. 
and that we push down the abilities that we feel like we have to match that in some way. This isn't a zero-sum game, as Justin likes to say. You keep saying that. I don't think it means what you think it means. Bill will help you later. Now, in verse number 12, he says, I'm going to be merciful to their unrighteousnesses, their sins, and their law. Now, see, well, unrighteousness has to do with just a flawed character. Sins has to do with what you, how you behave because your character is just flawed. And lawless deeds, or some translations put it in there as transgressions or something like that, iniquities, have to do with the things that you willfully do because of the other two things. That you wake up and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to do that. Why? I don't care. Feels good. Going to do it. Don't care if it hurts anybody, me, or anybody else. I'm going to do it because it's good. That's who I am. And God says, I will no longer remember those things. When we live under a system where we constantly think that God is remembering our sins all the time, he doesn't deal with you on the basis of what he, what, him remembering sin. He deals with you on the basis of him remembering who Christ is. And that's where he associates you with. Not saying sin's not a big deal. Not saying any of that stuff. Just saying this, that the Savior is bigger than sin. And that's the way that he's designed it. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to read a couple of these verses. I'm going to finish up, Paul, I promise. I'm saying this so when she goes back and watches it that she's aware, I'm aware that, I'm, she's aware that I'm aware of her because her husband has guns. So in Hebrews 10, <laughs> verse number 9, he says, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. This is a prophecy of Jesus. I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, first covenant, that he may establish the second covenant, the one we're under now, that by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Once for all. We're not constantly being made right with God in that sense. I would even go as far as to say this, is that sanctification is not something that you're getting, it's something that you have, and it's something that you're learning to walk in. It's not, God's not just like, you need to get more... Have you ever heard anybody say things like, you need to get more sanctified or you need to be more sanctified? I kind of get what they're saying, but I don't think they understand what they're implying. What they're implying is, is you need to go get something that you don't have. You tell me where you go get your sanctification from. You don't go get sanctification like you pick up tomatoes at Walmart, you know. All this is a work of grace that God gives. All of this that we're operating in. Verse number 14 of that same chapter, for by one offering he has perfected forever those that are being sanctified. Perfected. Made, made in a position to where they're right. Verse number 18 of that same, well, I think I just read that one. Verse number, let's see here, verse number 18. Let's see, here we go. Now, where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sins. Back that up real quick. Where there are the remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sins. That means going to church is not an offering for your sin. That means words that you say to God when you are contrite in your heart because of sin you've committed, not the offering for your sins. Giving money, not the offering for your sins. 
taking communion, regardless of what you think happens when you eat those elements, still not the offering for sin. Because where sins are remitted, there's no more need for an offering. That's why every year they went back and killed another animal in the Old Covenant, and killed another animal, and killed another animal. It was like paying off your credit card that you've done three times, that you can't seem to just not run it back up again. Because you pay it off, and you see the thing on Amazon, and you have to buy it, and you buy it, and you're like, it's only $10, and before you know it, you're 10 grand deep. I'm sorry, it's personal confession, but... <laughs> The sacrifices system under the Old Covenant was the same way. Every year, they would go in, they'd kill the animal, they would step out of the temple and say, I'm right with God, and then they would trimp over Saul's donkey and hit their knee and cuss, and then, boop, one more hit on the credit. All year long. Could you imagine having to live all 365 days of our year looking forward to the one day that your sins are remitted until the next time you start sinning again? What a miserable way to live. Under the new covenant, gone. I'm going to read one verse, and that's it. I know you're hungry. I get it. I hear some of your stomachs up here. Verse 13. This is the end of chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 13, last verse. We're going to finish up with this. So he says, you're not going to remember anything. I will remember no more. Verse 13. In that he says, a new covenant he has made. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, for you hipsters out there, listening to music on records is a thing again. Records, uh, you know, are those black scratchy things that you bump into them and then you got to start the song all the way over again. I know that Melvin was really into doo-wop in the day, and so he had all his doo-wop records. Is that a thing? I don't even know what that is, but I just know it's a word. Records, I, I can remember, remember when Laserdisc came out? They were like the thing, man. And then CDs, CDs used to come in packages like this big. You remember that? And like you open them real carefully because they had all kinds of fun stuff in there to look at, you know. The lyrics were there, you know, you had to listen, look at the lyrics, had to make sure your mom didn't see the lyrics. And so... We had the, you know, we had the CD, we had the tape. I remember when I got a, a tape, you know, a cassette tape player, like a Walkman type thing. I remember going all the way to Disney World, listening to Motley Crue's newest album, just blaring in my ears all the way down to Disney World. My mom hated it, all right? A tape, because my first car was a 1978 Buick LeSabre. It had 8-track player in it. I went to the thrift store on Government Street, bought a sack of 8-tracks for a dollar. None of them worked but one, and it just simply played, play that funky music, white boy, over and over and over again. <laughs> Not a lie. Ask Ben. It's all that we could get out of that 8-track player. I wasn't under the impression you could swap those out. But you don't go to Best Buy now and say, sir, give me your finest 8-track player, and uh, bringeth upon me the newest technology and your most recent phonograph release. We don't do that. What we do is we pull out our phones and we say, bam, new album in like, you know, 10 seconds, depending on your Wi-Fi connection. And you can even look at the words there. I just, I just found that out like six months ago. You know, you could even look at the words. Boom, it's there. You know why? Because that's the newest form. Everything else is more obsolete. It doesn't mean they're bad. It just means there's something better. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, look, the old covenant's not bad. He's saying, but I want you to understand that my intensity for righteousness burned so hot 
and that my demand for ultimate holiness was so strong that I let you off the hook on the demand for it, and my son did it for you. That burning, consuming fire, that, that character of God wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ doing what he did so you could be right with God. There is absolutely zero other ways to be right with God outside of Jesus Christ. None. Every other road is a broad road that leads straight to hell and destruction and separation from God. The good thing about it is, is here's a God that's done everything for you. That says nothing other than I want to give you this gift. Will you receive this gift that we call the new covenant? Where your sins, I've died and taken them away. I've risen again, as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about in later messages on this. I've risen again to give you my life. Is this what you want? The heart of man will either submit to the call of the gospel or they will remain in darkness and they will answer for their own existence before God one day. It doesn't have to be that way. You can stand before God made, you're made right, no sin, completely clean, if you turn from the way that you think and turn to what God has said. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed, okay? I appreciate your attention a whole lot. I certainly do. And we've laughed and we've made jokes and we've made serious points, but I do want to in this moment give you just a second to think in your mind, where am I at with God? Where am I at? I'm not going to come up. I grew up Baptist, but I ain't going to ask you to do anything Baptist right now. All right, so relax. But what I am going to ask you is to answer this question in your heart. Where are you at with God? Let's pray together, right? Father, thank you so much for loving us. And thank you for the new covenant. Uh, thank you that, um, and when I say this, Lord, I really do mean it in a, in a very positive way. Thank you that you're so intense in your demands for holiness and righteousness. Lord, would we be lost with anything less than what we've been created for? And uh, so we're thankful that in your goodness and your mercy and your grace, you have made, uh, made this good news, this gospel, this new covenant, Lord, that we can enter into with you, not based on our own works of righteousness, which we have none, but based on the perfect righteousness and the perfect works of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that this morning. I pray if there's any believers here that are still struggling with question marks about where they're at with God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would take away the question mark and put a period. Uh, I pray if there's anyone among us that's an unbeliever, that's never came to Christ, but the Spirit of God is, is heavy on their heart, uh, drawing them in. I pray that you would not relinquish that. I pray that you would, you would press down even harder on them, not to make them miserable, but they might know and experience and see the love of God. In uh, Jesus' name, amen.